Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that as we take in uh, this true story of Gideon and uh, how you related to him and your people, that we will learn great lessons for ourselves of what it means to be your people, what it means to have faith, and what it means to obey you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, side. She haven't been out here for a while. Seems a bit strange. Okay. Okay. Um. Usually, uh, one of the things I really enjoy is uh bike riding. But uh, knowing Singapore drivers, uh, I uh, I don't ride on the bike. Uh, on, I don't not no motorcycle, but cycling. Right. Uh, I tried cycling on the main road once with Robert, and that was enough for me. Uh, so now when I ride my bicycle, I ride in the East Coast Park. And uh, I was riding the other day, and I thought, you know, I'm pretty good. Like, I ride up and down. And I met a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for a long time. And apparently he runs marathons. And I said, oh, you know, I'm riding to here and there. And he says, oh, I'm actually running further than you're riding. Right? And I thought, wow, I must be really unfit. Anyway, we got to sitting down and we we're talking. He's been a Christian for many years. And uh, he made a, just a remark, a throwaway remark. that He said he felt that actually the Christian life was like a marathon. Okay, the Christian life was like a marathon. And, uh, and as we talked about it, we reflected upon it. I thought it's quite true, isn't it? Because in a marathon... Uh, People stumble, people get tired, people fall. But the idea is to keep going on, isn't it? And uh, the question is, we were talking, how do you keep going on in the Christian life? You know, what are the things that you stumble over? What are the things that you get tired uh, on that stop you from going on in the Christian life? And as I was talking to him, this was just last week actually, I, I thought it really reflected a lot of what we can learn in today's passage from Gideon. And if we listen carefully, we can actually see it teaches us many things about going on in the Christian life and the mistakes that people make. Now, so far, as we've been going through the book of Judges systematically from chapter 1, we know that uh, so far we've seen that there is a spiral, there is a sequencing, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a circle, a cycle that happens in the book of Judges. But not does it just go round and round, but we realize that it goes round and down, remember? That each cycle seems to be worse than the preceding one. Each cycle seems to to have a progressive deterioration, not just in the life, in the spiritual life of Israel, but also, as we will now see, in the life of the judges. So here, as we read, uh, right from the very beginning, chapter 6, verse 1 to 3, we can already see that that is true right from the beginning of, uh, of before Gideon's period. Right? Because it said that again, right? the, uh, the phrase is repeated again, the Israelites did evil, and the evil here was apostasy, they turned to other gods, in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. Uh, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped in the land, they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. Uh, now, if you look at this passage, it really shows that there's something not quite right, isn't it? Because in the, we've had three cycles of judges so far, right? And if you look at this map, in each cycle, they only really face one major enemy. Okay, one major enemy. So the first judge was Othniel, and he faced an enemy from the Mesopotamia, which was in the north and east. And then we had Ehud, uh, which was down from Moab. And then we had Shamgar, who were the Philistines coming up from the uh, southwest, And then last week we saw uh, Deborah and Barak, which is the next slide, and they faced an internal enemy, but they were 
camped and headquarters in Hazor and Harosheth. But here, it seems as if Israel is so weak that the occupying force don't even need to put an army in Israel. Alright, so if you look at the next slide, see Midian was down south, and it seems as if, you know, every time there was a slow day, maybe, you know, Sunday was a bit quiet, nothing interesting on television, right? They would just say, okay, let's go and visit Israel and see who we can bully today, okay? So we'll go in, kill the animals, rape their women, whatever, take all the stuff. And it just shows you how weak Israel was during this time that it says that whenever they planted their crops, these people, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other eastern people, just came up and helped themselves. So it's like living at home and the lock on your door doesn't work and people just come in whenever they feel like it and raid your fridge. Okay? But more than that, the, the enemies here are not just one major enemy, but there are a few enemies, isn't it? In verse 3, it said there were Midianites, Amalekites, and almost like the writer couldn't be bothered to name everybody else, the other eastern people. Right? These were just nomadic people who just happened to say, okay, let's go into Israel and see what we can, we can get these days. And it's a really pathetic picture because, remember in Judges chapter 1, uh, when we started right at the very beginning, Joshua had conquered the land. Remember, he had conquered the land, he had destroyed all the opposing forces, and God's people were meant to settle down and enjoy the land. But now, instead of enjoying the land, what are the Israelites doing? They are hiding in the caves while other people enjoy the land under them. Now, it shows the picture is getting worse and worse. Progressive deterioration. Cycle of going down and down. Israel is going down the drain. And as we have seen over the last few weeks, Israel cried to the Lord. And God answers them. But for the first time, He sends them a prophet. Okay, in the past, there wasn't this prophet idea, right? Here we actually have a prophet, and the prophet tells Israel exactly what is the problem. And what is the problem? Well, in chapter, chapter 6, verse 7 to 10, the Israelites are told, what is the problem? Alright, the next slide. Okay, so the prophet says, sorry, the angel says, uh, which God said, sorry, the prophet says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. And this is the key to understanding uh, this story of Gideon, isn't it? The idea of listening to God. Right? Because... You know, when you look at, uh, we're not going to look at it in each verse verse, because obviously we're so big, we'll spend the whole day here, right? But I want to look at the movement, the movement in this story. And the central movement is, is about God, isn't it? God is the main character in the story. And we're meant to see how does God operate in the story, and how does God uh, save His people. But underlying all that is, will the people listen to God, isn't it? See, that's the good thing about looking at the passage in one, one whole stretch because we get a helicopter view. Because all too often with Gideon, we always get the character study of Gideon, right? Gideon and the fleece, uh, Gideon and uh, his trumpets. You know, if you go to children's church, it's all very colourful. But that's not the main part of the story. The story is what is God doing that we should listen to Him? 
And the first character we meet is obviously Gideon, isn't it? And I think as we see Gideon, we see how God is working in his people. So, the first thing we see about Gideon is what? Next slide. Okay. Uh, okay, no, don't worry about next slide. Okay. Now, Gideon, as we see, we're not going to look at all the, the passages, but Gideon, the first thing we see about Gideon is he is threshing out wheat in a wine press. Uh, now, what does that mean? Now, uh, when you thresh out wheat, you have uh, these long stalks and then there's all the wheat and you bang it on the ground, right? And all the grains of wheat come out. But why is Gideon threshing out this wheat uh, in a wine press? Right? Because uh, a wine press is basically a structure where you stamp on the grapes or it's a, it's a depression on the ground where you can, you can collect all the grapes and step on it. Why is he doing this? Well, he's doing it because he is scared, isn't it? He's worried that the Amalekites, the Midianites will see him and they'll come and take his food from him. But like a commentator also said, this threshing out of the wheat is something that the youngest child would probably do. Right? And we know Gideon is the least in his family. It's a bit like throwing out the garbage. Okay? Right? The, the youngest person usually does it. Right? So here, Gideon is, is, is actually a young, probably just a young strapping boy. Uh, he's a bit cowardly, scared. Uh, he's not really like NCO officer material. Okay? So that's, that's the idea that we get. But more than that, in verse 15, we see that he doesn't really have a very good lineage. Okay, he says there, in verse 15, But Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Now, it doesn't bode very well, right? Because not only is he a, probably a young boy, he's quite a scaredy cat, but also, he doesn't have any family history. His, his father is not a general or a ruler or something like that. So I always remember that when I was young, I always thought, you know, Gideon, I, I remember when I was in secondary school, I had a friend of mine behind me called Gideon. Okay? And, uh, you know, I always thought, you know, Gideon is this you know, really big, strapping guy, very impressive. But I think the picture that we get when we look at this story is actually Gideon is uh, like this, lah, okay? Like this. Okay? He's actually like this wimpy kid, okay? Because... When you look at the story, that's, that's the way he's portrayed. He's the youngest child, he's the least. You know, he's hiding, cowering in this wine press, you know, beating out the, the, the wheat in order to get the wheat. And he's just a, a young kid with no family line. And as we go along, uh, this Gideon doesn't seem to give you the impression that he is the sort of person that uh, the angel says, you know, he's a mighty warrior. Because at each step of the way, if you notice as was read to us by Mark and Laysan, he lacks faith, isn't it? In a way, he, he doubts God a lot. So, right at the very beginning, it's quite humorous actually, you, you, I think the writer writes it in such a way to bring out the humor, as uh, was said to us by Paul Barker, right? Okay, next slide. So, this uh, angel comes to him and says, look, you know, you are the mighty warrior. But then Gideon it's not enough for this uh, angel to tell him you're a mighty warrior. He wants a sign. Okay? And this is very important because we keep seeing all these signs as we look through the story of Gideon. And in verse 17, he says, Look, if now I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Who else could it be, right? But anyway, right? please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering to set it before you. And then, 
uh, after asking for a sign, what is Gideon's reaction in verse 22? Well, it said that with the tip of the staff, I'm not sure you got that there. Oh. Okay, when, verse 22, I'll read it there. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, because the angel of the Lord made the thing burst into flames, right? Okay, imagine instant barbecue. He exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. Now, the way you understand it is almost like, ah, yeah, right, I've seen the sovereign Lord. So in one sense, he wants a sign to get confidence in God, but actually when he sees the sign, what happens? He's afraid, isn't he? He's scared. And that sort of says something about Gideon, isn't it? What sort of warrior is this? He wants a sign from God, when he gets a sign from God, instead of having more faith, he's more scared. Okay, so, as we come to this point, that should be enough, isn't it? I mean, imagine you've got this powerful sign from God, the thing goes into flames, but then as we go along, Gideon still needs more signs. Right? And we come to the famous story of Gideon and the fleece. Okay, so the, the, the Gideon and the fleece is not uh, a sign, the first sign, but it's one of many signs. So let's look at Gideon and the fleece. So later on, Gideon said to the Lord, said to God, if, if, notice, if you will save Israel by my hand, and as you have promised, Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. And if there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will have saved Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. And you sort of think, well, that should be enough sign, right? But then Gideon probably thought, hey, maybe in the middle of the night someone played a trick on me, right? Maybe somebody came and put... Water on the fleece, right? So let's do it the other way around because that's harder, isn't it? Because if there's water all around, the, the fleece is dry. That's actually really, really quite supernatural. So Gideon then said to God, Do not be angry with me. Uh, let me just make one more request. Just one more, please, God, right? Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. And all the ground was covered with dew. Now, uh, this uh, incident uh, presents many problems for us as Christians. I, I remember hearing a pastor saying that uh, whenever you hear a preacher uh, just talking about Gideon and the fleece, make sure that he doesn't fleece you. Okay? Because it's very easy for us to look at this passage and think, okay, well, Gideon asked for a sign. It's appropriate for us as Christians to ask for signs too, isn't it? So I remember um, asking someone to go to church camp once before. This is a true story. Yeah. Okay, I'm not making this up. Someone, I asked someone to go to church camp. And they said, I, want a, I need a sign from God telling me that I need to go to church camp. I want God to show me a rabbit in the sky. Right? I, I'm telling you, this is a true story, okay? Now, this is a completely wrong way of understanding what happened to get in here. Because actually the sign and the fleece is not about where to go, which direction, right? But it's actually showing the need of Gideon for more faith. He, he's scared, he's doubting. He needs God to hold his hand and to reassure him. So let me, um, let me read to you uh, from this book that I have called Decision Making and the Will of God and it, it relates this passage. And it, he says a really good thing, right? Okay, he says this. He says, um, uh, Gideon's demand for further signs was really an expression of doubt and unbelief. 
God's instruction to Gideon was clear. And even Gideon himself in verse 39 knows that it's not an appropriate thing to ask for. See, notice what he says. He says, God, do not be angry with me. He knows that he's asking for something more. And in fact, this book uh, goes on to say, look, why does Gideon need so many signs? Because up to this point, we already have the angel speaking to him, one. The fire, two. God speaking to him directly, three. The spirit in him, four. He's got fleece, number one, right? That's five signs. Why does he need another sign? It's an expression of his lack of faith, right? His, his, his fear, he's scared. So, all in all, uh, Gideon doesn't appear to be a very uh, suitable warrior to save Israel. But then in chapter 7, verse 9, we find that Gideon needs one last sign, isn't it? One last sign. So, in verse 9 of chapter 7, this is what God says to him. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up and go down against the camp because I'm going to give it to your hands. We know that's going to happen, right? God said, I'm going to give it to your hands. But look at verse 10. If, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp of your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. See, God has already said go, right? He didn't say, now you need to go and listen to this dream. He says, if you're scared, go and listen to this dream. And I think that's an expression of that Gideon is actually quite a, a scaredy cat, isn't it? He's got six signs, and here he's about to attack, but he, God still says, so if you're still scared, if you're still not sure, go down with your servant, Pura. Now, I think it's really significant that uh, God says you need to go down with your servant, right? Now, this uh, servant, Pura, is not, it doesn't say your commando, Pura, or your warrior, or your special forces, Pura, right? So, if you, uh, recently we've had this... Um, um, this uh, uh, controversy, right, with uh, the NS, the NS guy with the the maid, right? So, you know, when I was when I was reading, I was thinking, you know, it, it reminds me of Gideon, isn't it? Because why does he need his servant to go down with him in his camp? I mean, this is not like David or Jonathan, you know, the mighty warriors, right? Okay. So I, I went to the internet, then I did a search, and all these other pictures that came out, right? So this is Gideon and his uh, his maid, right? Uh, okay, the next one. Okay, that's the, the maid again, and Gideon. Uh, and then somebody did this last one. Lah. So, all the maids and the soldiers. Right? Okay? So, okay, uh, that's enough humor for now. Okay, okay, you can turn it off. Okay, but, but I think that what I want to show you as we read the movement of the story, actually, as you read it, you sort of wonder how is God going to use this wimpy person right, who is so... He needs to have his, hel- his hand held all the time to save his people, isn't it? He needs seven signs before he actually does anything. But only, not only that, as we read the movement of the story, we are also struck by how small the army uh, God is using to free his people. So again, in chapter 7, uh, verse 1 to 3, we see the size of the army. Right? Early the next, in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian is, was north of them in the valley in the, near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me and that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, 
anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 20,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Okay, so the total force to begin with was 32,000, right? Okay, that's your maths for you. And then later on, uh, God says it's not even enough, isn't it? So he does this uh, little um, uh, separation or sifting process where the people who, who drink water by lapping and those who uh, just uh, put their face in the water uh, are separated and they're left with 300 men. Now, some commentators say, oh, you know, those 300 men, they were the really alert people because, you know, people who, who drink, lap the water, right, they bring the water up to them and then they're drinking and lapping like this. So, you know, they're very alert. They're always looking around, right? Whereas the people who put their face in the water... Those are the people who are very, uh, not very alert. But I don't think that's, a, that's the whole point of what God is doing, isn't it? God is not trying to, like, trying to show who the super fit or the super army people, right? It's not like, okay, who can do 20 pull-ups and 50 push-ups, right? But this is just a random test. And I think that the whole point here is, is, is shown here, isn't it? That God will get the glory. And truly, God gets the glory because when you think of the numbers which are involved, um, the opposition army, even to begin with, is 135,000. 135,000 soldiers. Okay, the next slide. Because in chapter 8, verse 10, it records how many have died and how many are left. So if you do your maths, 15,000 plus 120,000 is 135,000. See, that's why I became an accountant. Alright, okay. Now, just think of those numbers. Next slide. To begin with, Israel had 32,000 and the enemy had 135,000. That's one soldier to four. And God said, oh, that's too many. Too many. Then there was 10,000 to 135,000. That was one to 13. And then finally he said, let's reduce it to 300. That's one soldier to 450 soldiers. Now, I think I'm a pretty strong person. Right? I can take you all on. Right? Open combat. That's like me, one person versus like, you know, I don't know, maybe 70, 80 of you. Now imagine me versus five times this congregation. That's the number, you know, the odds that they're looking at. But yet, God delivers His people, right, with this wimpy person and the odds of one to 450. And how does He do it? Well, if you, if you wanted to tell somebody or a child in a nutshell exactly how God won the battle, he would say, oh, you know, in the middle of the night, nah, God sent his army out to this opposition force and then he, in the middle of the night, he went, boo! Because that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Right? That's exactly the story. He just went up there and, um, and he scared them and they killed each other because God caused them to kill each other. Now, some people say, oh, you know, this brilliant plan nah, was all from Gideon. But I think that if you look at the narrative, I think, God actually planned for this to happen even before Gideon got up to the mountain. In chapter 7, verse 8. Alright, chapter 7, verse 8. Next slide. Uh, okay, no, sorry, next slide. Right. Even before they went up to the battleground, they already had all the trumpets with them. That means God already knew that when they were going up there, they would need these trumpets. They would need these jars. Right, why would you carry all these trumpets for? You carry swords and shields and whatever, but well, why would you carry 300 trumpets, right? And, 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 and how did he win? Well, his soldiers on one hand were carrying a torchlight and the other hand they were carrying a vuvuzela, right? How are you going to fight 
where you have both hands carrying different things. So in the end, as we read the story, it's really trying to show us that God did an amazing thing, isn't it? He used 300 people against 135,000 with a leader who was a bit reluctant to begin with, 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 with people who didn't actually fight because they were blowing trumpets and uh, just shining a torchlight around, right? And I think as you read this story, you should really feel a sense of awe, isn't it? That this is a, a powerful God and, and, and a sense of wonder at how God can actually cause these things to happen. And I think that uh, uh, one of my lecturers, Barry Webb, uh, said a very interesting thing. He said that actually God is great, isn't it? If you're an Israelite reading this story, you think God is great. And as a Christian reading this story, you think God is great. There should be a sense of awe when you read this story. Uh, a sense of wonder that God is like that. And I think that's part of the secret of actually being a Christian, being God's person. We must never lose the sense of awe and wonder at the power and majesty and sovereignty of God. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that God is this wondrously powerful God who's just so majestic? Or do you feel like God is like, you know, very dry and mundane, very everyday? Like, I was thinking, you know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, you know, the cross, right? The cross of Jesus Christ. After a while, it's a bit dry or right? a bit of a yawn. Or, you know, sometimes you think, you know, when you, when you take the Lord's Supper, like we're going to do today, like, you know, when you take the Lord's Supper, you drink the ribena, you eat the bread, you think, okay, la, another Sunday. But actually, we must never forget the majesty and the wonder and, and, and just be really amazed at who God is and what He does. Isn't it? We, we might, must never take it for granted just how powerful God is and what He has done for us. Uh, in those days, what He did to save His people and today, what He has done to save us in Jesus. See, I think to keep going on in the Christian life is to keep appreciating who God is and just how powerful He is and, and what a wonder it is that He has done all these things for us. That He loves us in this way. If you can hold on to that, I think you can continue on as a Christian. But the problem here as we look at this story, is that they give the glory to the wrong person, right? So in chapter 8, verse 2, up here, chapter 8, verse 2, uh, they give the glory not to who? Not to God, but they give the glory to, to Gideon, isn't it? Which is completely wrong, because if you remember last week, Barak and Deborah, who did they give the glory to? In one whole chapter, they praised God, isn't it? They sang to God about how mighty He was, how great He was. But here, the people praise Gideon. And I think it's a very big mistake because when we give glory to man, when we put our trust in man, when we put our faith in man, as we will see uh, at the end of this story about Gideon, it, it, it leads us astray, isn't it? Uh, because man is fallible. Man is weak. We must always give glory to God and put our faith and trust in God. And that's why uh, I always feel very uncomfortable. I remember going to one of these churches once before and uh, this pastor was saying, oh, you know, the church is so big, right? But before we got to this size, I had to become like this. And I was thinking, well, then you know, she's saying God did the work, isn't it? It's because of what you did. You are the one that grew this church. And that's why sometimes it also makes me uncomfortable when people say, oh, no, I go to so-and-so's church. 
This is not so and so's church, it is God's church in which this person is serving. So we must never make the mistake of giving our trust and glory to a fellow human being who has fallen, who is sinful just like us, but we must always give it to this great and awesome God that we have. Now, uh, if that's a, the major movement, which is what God is doing, then I think Gideon also has a movement all the way through this story, isn't it? And Gideon sort of has two parts in this story. Uh, the first part, which we always cover in our children's church, which is the good Gideon, right? As opposed to the bad Gideon. And the good Gideon uh, is that even though he doubts, even though each time he keeps asking for signs, he keeps believing and going on. You notice, uh, that's a good thing about going through the whole book of Judges at one time, you notice Gideon is different from Barak. Remember Barak said to Deborah, if you don't go, I will not go. Remember he said that? But Gideon never says, God, if you don't do this sign for me, I'll never, I'll, I'll never do this, right? There's no conditionality. It's like, God, I, I, I'm really struggling here. God, you know, I need more faith. I need more reassurance. Please help me in my doubt, isn't it? And I think that um, even as we look at the first uh, thing that he does, chapter 6, right? Um, he destroys uh, this altar which his father built, which I presume is not just a family altar, but a huge altar for the whole town, right? And some people say, ah, yeah, you know, this Gideon, he, you know, he did it in the middle of the night. What a, what a coward, isn't it? But at the same time, he still obeyed God, isn't it? And he still did what nobody else in Israel was doing that time. He was listening to God and uh, getting rid of the foreign idols. And because of that, he was called Jeroboam. And this name becomes very important, Jeroboam. I want you to remember, Jeroboam, he contends against Baal. Okay? Because that is his name now. Okay? It's used later on in the narrative. Because he contends against Baal. And here, uh, we see that even though he keeps doubting, he never gives up his faith. He always obeys in the end. He might hesitate, he might pause, he might wait, but he still has faith to go on. And that is why in the, in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews, I think, takes this example of uh, Gideon and, 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 and says for ourselves, look, Gideon can be an example for us, isn't it? I want you to pay attention to the words very carefully because I think it relates to Gideon's experience. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what, has, what He has promised. For in just a little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. Uh, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, okay, and so on. See, here's Gideon, right? He perseveres. He doesn't throw his confidence. He doesn't shrink back. Yes, he hesitates. He has doubts. But he keeps going on in his faith. And I think that's really important for us as, as, as Christians. You know, to go on in the Christian life, it doesn't take brains, right? It doesn't take muscle, but it takes continual faith in God. Now, I think Gideon is very much like ourselves, isn't it? Uh, we read something in the Bible, 
We know God wants us to do something. We know what we have to do. But we hesitate, we doubt. But, but Gideon says, look, let's go on. Ask God for more faith. Keep going back to God. Keep praying to Him. Keep reading His Word. Keep engaging in fellowship so that you can go on even in your difficulty and your doubt. Now, the guy who I met the, that, that time when I was, I'll call him the marathon man, lah, much easier. The marathon man, right? He gave me this book called Going the Distance, How to Stay Fit for a Lifetime Ministry. And the first chapter talks about the, the self-care. Right? He says the most important thing is self-care. And he says self-care is all about making sure that your faith in Jesus Christ keeps going on. That's the most important thing in life. Doesn't matter about ministry, doesn't matter about work, but self care to make sure that your faith keeps going on. And I think that's what Gideon teaches us, isn't it? That in his first part of his life, he kept going on in his faith. Even though he had all these difficulties, he kept going on. Unfortunately, the second half of uh, Gideon and the movement of Gideon is, um, is quite uh, sad lah, and negative, right? And here I want to show you this table and I want you to keep it in mind as we go along uh, for the rest of the book of Judges. See, the first three Judges, um, in the, I mean, the other Judges, but these are the big stories, right, that we've seen. So, Othniel was the big story. Ehud was the second story, you know, one of the left-handed, sharp-sword guy, right? And Deborah and Barak. And each of these three characters, these three Judges, we are not really told anything negative about them. They were quite positive, even though, okay, you know, Ehud stabbed the guy, but yeah, you know, it's war and everything. But, you know, in terms of character, they all are not said to be, have ended badly or have any negative flaws in that way. But, when we come to Gideon, it starts, we start seeing that actually the character of the judges progressively gets worse and worse. Maybe it's part of the downward spiral of Israel, right? So, I don't need to talk about Samson now. You know, as we, we all know Samson, even before we've come to it, that, you know, Samson womanizer, adulterer, foolhardy, all sorts of problems, okay? Now, but beginning in Gideon, they start, they start, we start seeing flaws in their character. And Gideon, here, as we read the whole of chapter 8, we start seeing a lot of problems, isn't it? I don't know whether when uh, Mark was reading it, you felt uncomfortable. Did he really need to get those townspeople and whip them with the, the thorns, so that their skin will be torn and everything else. Did he need to kill the people of Penel? Uh, when he went and he attacked and he got his son to kill the two kings, was it because God told him to or because he wanted personal vengeance? But I think worst of all uh, was the last section, is the next slide, where he got his own people to give them one gold earring. And uh, they made, or actually he made, this goal ephod. Now, an ephod is actually uh, quite an unremarkable thing. Just think of, uh, you know, your cooking apron. You know, people cooking apron, right? Just think of a very super expensive cooking apron. Okay? Made of gold and precious stones and everything else. Okay? That's what it is. But the problem was that God had said that only the priests could wear that ephod. And only at a certain time and there was a certain purpose to it for, for direction and God's guidance. So you have to ask yourself, why did Gideon make this effort? Did God tell him to make this effort? No, isn't it? He made this effort 
on his own accord. And people can only assume, and I think it's right, that God had told Gideon, look, you are to be the judge, you are to be the, you know, uh, the, the leader of these people. But he never told him to assume the relig- religious leadership. Right? The religious leadership. The religious leadership was meant to be given to someone else. But yet here, Gideon, out of his own accord, took religious leadership over Israel. And, and the worst thing is that the words are very strong, isn't it? They prostituted themselves and it became a snare for his family. Now this is so sad, isn't it? Because remember what Gideon's other name was? Jerubal. He com- contends against the other gods. So the very first act of Gideon was to get rid of the other gods. By the very end of his life, he has actually brought them back to where they were in the beginning. Prostituting themselves to other gods. And it's really sad because the reason why Israel fell was what? Because they didn't listen to God. And here Gideon is not listening to God too. And, and Israel were, were, were turning over themselves to other gods. And here Gideon himself is facilitating the prostitution of themselves to other gods. And I think that it's a very, very big lesson for us as we end uh, this section, isn't it? Now what happened to Gideon here? What was his mistake? I think his mistake was he became self-reliant. He didn't listen to God anymore. He wasn't so interested in doing what God wanted, but what Gideon wanted. Instead of God's agenda, it was Gideon's agenda. Instead of God's glory, it was Gideon's glory. And I think that for ourselves, we can, that can happen to us, isn't it? Uh, we become overconfident. We become self-reliant. We don't listen to God anymore. And we think that what is good for me is good for God. So I remember uh, there are these two, um, okay, just up here. There are these two, uh, okay, so, um, okay, just to give you some information. So basically it says that uh, the, uh, up there in Oprah, which is around the area, uh, that was where the ephod was, and the people all went there to start worshipping God. But actually the house of God, in Judges chapter 18 verse 31, was actually in Shiloh. That's where uh, the, the ark was and everything. So he actually set up an alternative worship structure in his hometown, which, which was completely... Uh, not what God instructed him. Okay, next slide. So I want you to um, think about this. Uh, there was a prayer that we pray in the, uh, in the Back to Basics class that we do for baptism. And it was a very good prayer because I thought, okay, this is, this is linked to what we are, speak, we are preaching about here in Gideon, right? So John Calvin said, uh, we shall be adjusted to prayer. I mean, he basically says we should pray, right? We should, we should pray as we should when we are not anxious simply for ourselves and for our own cause but to give prior praise, place sorry, to the glory of God. For it is quite absurd if we only take care of our own business and neglect the kingdom of God. And isn't that what Gideon has done? And isn't that what many people do? That we are only interested in ourselves and our cause and not God's glory and God's kingdom. Uh, apparently Richard, uh, not Richard, Rudyard Kipling right, wrote this uh, poem. He said, And only the master shall praise us and only the master shall blame. No one shall work for money, and no one shall work for fame. But each for the joy in the, of the working, and each in a separate star, shall draw the thing as he sees it for the God of the things that are. Ah, okay, very cheap, not right. But what he's basically saying is that the only thing that really matters is not the praise of men, or for work, or for money, or for fame, but only to glorify God and to serve Him alone, isn't it? 
So in conclusion, uh, I got another book here. I got lots of books, and he gives this illustration about how there's a Christian. There are different sorts of Christians. Okay, and he compares them to uh, motorboats. Okay, so so one Christian is like a, a power boat. You know those power boats. You know like you see in Sentosa Cove, those people engines, and they drive wherever they want to go, isn't it? Right. Okay, maybe one day somebody will buy a boat and we can all go on it. Right. You drive wherever you go. And he said, that's a Christian who is self-reliant, isn't it? Because this Christian just goes wherever they want to go, whatever they want to do, for their own glory, for their own thinking. That's what this Christian is like. He's like a power boat Christian. But there's another sort of Christian who's like a sailing boat. And a sailing boat can only go where the wind is blowing. I mean, to a certain degree, can only go where the wind is going, isn't it? And he says, you know, a sailing boat is like a Christian who listens to God and goes where God wants them to go. Right? They, they are listening to God through His Word, they are listening to God through His Holy Spirit, and they only go where it glorifies God and it builds up God's kingdom. And I think that that's a mistake that we need to avoid in Gideon's life. We are not power boats. We do not go where we go where for our own glory, doing our own thing. But we are like sailing boats. We listen to God. We go along with His guidance. And we go in the direction where only He is glorified and His kingdom is built up. So I pray for all of us here that truly we will take on board these lessons and really persevere in our Christian life and not make some of the mistakes that we see here in the life of Gideon and Israel. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that we will have strong faith that we will be always in awe and reverencing you, and that we will not be overconfident and self-reliant, that we will always humble ourselves before you to listen to your word, to listen to the guidance of your Holy Spirit, to do only what is right for your glory and uh, for your kingdom. Dear Father, we pray for each and every one of us here that we will continue to listen to you, to have strong faith, and that when Jesus comes again, we will truly rise up to Him, with Him in heaven. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.